This podcast is available in video at fpcgolfport.org and FPC Golfport on YouTube. Do you think that God needs people in order to get things done? Do you think that God needs us? Now, he's called us. He's called us, that's for sure. But do you think that God needs us to accomplish anything here on earth? Well, the short answer to that question is no, absolutely not. See, part of the job description of being God is that you can do everything yourself. Part of the job description of being God is that you have sovereignty over all things, that you can do all things, and that there's no hole in you that mankind has to come along and fill. There's no task that you can't do that you require others to do. Part of the job description of being God is that you can do God-like things across the scope of that which you have created. A God who needs help is no God at all. Now, if that's true, then why does Jesus recruit disciples? Assuming he doesn't need them, assuming Jesus could have just walked from town to town like the Pied Piper played a flute or snapped his fingers or what have you, assuming he could have done that, why this? Why did he recruit the disciples rather than just serving as an evangelistic one-man band? There's probably a number of reasons why he didn't do that, and we'll get to a few of them in today's text. But let me just tell you at the outset, I'm glad he didn't do that. I'm glad he didn't just do it all himself. I'm glad he recruited disciples, and I'm glad he's recruited you and I. I'm glad for this because one of the greatest blessings that God has to give us beyond our salvation is the ability and the call to serve along Christ in the salvation of still others. See, God has made us partakers in his work, and sometimes we underestimate how cool that is. At times past, I've shared a story. I think there's an old Baptist preacher is where I first heard it. But he drew an analogy. He said, all right, if I was to give you a choice, if God was to give you a choice and God was to say, hey, I will give you a corner of the cosmos, this whole galaxy, and you can design it. You can create worlds, both great and small, stars, black holes, all sorts of things. And on the planets that dot the canvas of this creation, you can put all manner of things. You can put the trees and the forests and all sorts of wildlife and the like. And I'm going to give you the ability to paint with a paintbrush on the canvas of creation. Now, that sounds kind of cool. That sounds like quite the responsibility, quite the privilege. If God gave you a corner of the universe and you could design it, that sounds like a great opportunity. Well, here's the thing. The opportunity he has given you to serve in the salvation of your peers is greater still. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. It didn't cost the blood of the Son of God to create a planet. It didn't cost the blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary to add trees and forests and fauna and wildlife and like that to any number of plants. Creation itself did not cost the shed blood of Jesus, but the recreation of the human heart did. To take that which was dead, that which stained, that was sinful, and to breathe into it new life, that, you could argue, is a greater act than even the creation to begin with. To take that which is dead and breathe in it to a new life. Well, here's the thing. Jesus has invited you and I to partake in the work by which others are saved. Jesus says, yeah, I could snap my fingers. I could just say a word and it could all happen. But I've invited you to be the voice by which others hear about me. I invited you to have the privilege of taking part, of being my hands, my human instrumentation, my comforting arms by which others might walk into the kingdom. I have invited you to be an ambassador I have invited you to be an emissary for the kingdom of heaven, to teach and preach, to point people to Jesus Christ, that they might be saved and enter in 
And in the eyes of God the Father, that is a far more amazing and wondrous and important work than even if you could go off and color the cosmos itself. He's invited you to do that. But so often we take that wonderful opportunity and we think nothing of it. We're dismissive of it. In this morning's text, Jesus could have snapped his fingers and done it all, but he invited, he invited folks to share in his great work, to come alongside him. And the salvation of souls and the glory to the Father. This is not a small or a trifling thing. All right, let's look at the calling of these first four disciples. We'll see four disciples in today's text, verses 35 through 42. Let's see by which the first three are called. So verse 35. So the next day, John, and this is referring to John the Baptist, John stood with two of his disciples. Because you remember, as he was baptizing, he had his own disciples, those who followed John. And then, looking at Jesus as he walked, as he comes down the waterside over by the Jordan, John pointed and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, he said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is translated as teacher, Where are you staying? And he said to them, Well, come and see. So they came and saw where he was staying. They remained with him that day, for it was now about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was named Andrew, and he was Simon Peter's brother. And he then found his brother Simon and said to him, We found him. We found the Messiah, which is translated as Christ, Messiah Christ. And then he brought Peter to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he says, You are Simon, the son of Jonah, but now you will be called Cephas, or stone, or rock. All right. As verse 35 begins, John the Baptist, again, he's hanging out with his disciples. He's doing the thing that a guy named John the Baptist does. He's baptizing folks. So this is part of his work, and that's what he's doing. Now, as he looks out, he sees one approach. He's there with Andrew and John. As a side note, John, the guy who wrote the book John, he never refers to himself by name in this book. You have to kind of look at the verses and say, ah, that's self-reference. So that's the case here. John and Andrew are there talking with John the Baptist, and John the Baptist, as we've said in the past, he's one who came to prepare the way for the Messiah. He was the last prophet under the Old Testament economy. His job was to point to Jesus. Remember in the Old Testament, he had prophets, and they always pointed forward. Every prophet pointed forward, right, in the Old Testament. That was their job. They looked to the one to come. They looked to the Messiah. They looked to the fulfillment of covenantal promises that had been made. They're always pointing forward. Well, the last guy whose finger went forward, the last guy to point forward was John. He was the last in the Old Testament economy, the last man who had been called of God to point to Jesus. The difference between John the Baptist and Isaiah or Daniel or Jeremiah or Nahum or Amos and the like, the difference between them and him was that while they had to point forward with their words, they prophesied about this coming Jesus, John could point with his finger, say, that guy, That's him. See him? He's coming down the beach. That guy, he's the one. Behold, with your eyeballs, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, when John refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God, this had a great significance in the Old Testament covenantal community. Remember in the Old Testament, they had the temple and they had the altar, and what did they do on the altar? They say slaughtered animals, all sorts of lambs. The lambs piled up to the heavens. They were slaughtering animals all the time. With that said, all of those animals that were slain pointed forward to one who would come. There were types and shadows that looked forward to the arrival of one guy, one Christ, one Messiah. 
one lamb of God who was the fulfillment of all that which these other animals typified. And when John says, behold the lamb of God, he's saying, that's the one. All the stuff we've been doing for centuries, slaughtering animals in order to atone for sins, said it all had to point forward to one who could actually atone for sins, one future arrival, one future Messiah, one in which Isaiah 53, which is what this Bible is open to, depicts as one who would be slaughtered for our transgressions, by whose stripes we would be healed. One had to come to be sacrificed to save mankind, and John says, that's him. Behold the Lamb of God. Now, for John the Baptist, this marked a turning point in his own ministry. And the turning point was this. Now that he had done his job to point forward to Jesus, and Jesus was here, and Jesus was now beginning his public ministry, John's ministry needed to recede. Like all the other Old Testament prophets, his work was done. And that's what he himself would say. He would talk to Jesus and say, he must increase. The Lamb of God, the one coming down the waterside here. He must increase, but I must decrease. I'm not worthy to tie the sandals. I'm baptizing with water. He's baptizing with the Holy Spirit. John pointed forward to this one. And on this great day, we see that he is here. The transition from John the Baptist's ministry and the ministry of all the Old Testament prophets ends here. Now we have the public ministry of Jesus Christ. He has arrived. And that transition is marked by what we see in verse 37. The two disciples that had been with John the Baptist, Andrew and John, at this point they leave John the Baptist. They leave John the Baptist not because they retired of him or didn't like him anymore, but, but one who was greater was here. The Christ himself, the Messiah had come. So they left the one, they left John the Baptist in order to follow the other. Now, as they talked with him, as we see in these verses, they were evidently so impressed with this Jesus that Andrew went and he says, I got to tell someone, this is the greatest day of my life. This is the greatest day in the life of all Israel. I got to go tell someone. So that's what he does. He runs off and he thinks, who can I tell? I know, I'll go tell my brother. So he goes and finds his brother, he finds Simon Peter, and he makes that very statement. He says, we found him. Who? Who did you find? We have found the Messiah. Now, of all the provocative statements you could make into the ears of a Hebrew in this century, if there was anything you could say that would get people to stop what they're doing and pay attention, this was at the top of the list. Because for century after century, the Jews have been waiting for this guy. For centuries, all the writings, from Isaiah on, all the writings have been pointing forward to one guy. And the question had always been, when's he going to arrive? Oh, Lord, how long? You remember Habakkuk? Oh, Lord, how long? Things are going dreadful. Things look just murky and bad. How long till this guy shows up? Well, that was the question of the Jews in the first century as well because they were under the boot of Rome. This was an oppressed people. They didn't have their hope and their confidence in themselves. It was waning. They were praying, how long? And so for someone to say, hey, the wait is over. The wait is ended, for we have found him. This would have been about the most significant thing you could hear in this context. So how did Peter respond? He was known as Simon again, but how did Peter, as we know him, respond? Well, remember, Peter's the impetuous guy, and he says, i got to see this. i got to go see this for myself. And So he runs off, and in verse 42, he meets Jesus. And interestingly, the first thing that Jesus does is to rename him. You're no longer going to be Simon. You're going to be Peter, which means rock. All right, let's look at verses 43 to 46. Now, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. 
If you remember right, John the Baptist had been baptizing way down in the scrub brush, way down towards the south, towards the Jordan. Down there, it was barren, it was unpleasant. And so Jesus here, he says, I want to go to Galilee, which is green and lush. And of course, he had other reasons to want to travel there as well. That was home base, was Galilee. So verse 43, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, same place. And then Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him. We found him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, listen to Nathanael's response, because it's different than what the other guys did. Nathanael said to him, can anything good Come out of Nazareth. And Philip said to him, come and see. Come and check out for yourself. All right, so the day after Jesus recruits the first set of disciples, verse 43, he says he he gets up, he's going to go towards Galilee, at which point he finds Philip, and he invites Philip to follow along as well. Now, the previous disciples had all been introduced. You know, there was like a matchmaker here. They'd all been introduced. This guy introduces him and so forth, says, come see, you got to see, he's awesome, come look, and then he meets Jesus. Well, this is somewhat different in the sense that Jesus takes his initiative, it would seem, to, to seek out, by divine appointment, this man named Philip. He's not introduced, Jesus just comes to him, calls him, and says, follow me. So what do we know about this Philip guy here in this text? Well, verse 44 tells us that Philip was from Bethsaida. This is the same place Andrew and Peter were from. And that suggests that he was probably a fisherman, just like they were. The word Bethsaida actually means house of fishing. Sounds like a restaurant around here. (laughs) The house of fishing. Now, does the fact that the guy lived in a fishing town mean that he was a fisherman? You know, you and I live in a fishing, shrimping industry. I tell folks and relatives elsewhere about all the coasts and all the fishing opportunities and the like. So I live in a fishing town too, but I can't catch a cold. I can't, I can't, I can't fish in the least. So with that said, in Philip's case, though, it probably was true. That he probably was a fisherman because that really was the primary industry in this area. So after Philip had responded to Christ's invitation, he says, yes, I'll follow you. Then he went and recruit someone else. Notice the bringing aspect here. Disciples bring others to Jesus. Disciples bring others to Jesus. That's one of the jobs of disciples. It's something we should be doing. Disciples bring others to Jesus. Well, that's exactly what Philip does. He's called, and like the first thing he does is he goes and recruits somebody else. He goes and finds this guy that we know as Nathaniel. Now, other gospel records sometimes refer to him as Bartholomew. Apparently different names with somewhat normative practice in this context. So he comes to Nathaniel, and in verse 45, Philip invites Nathaniel. He says, come join our merry bunch. He says, we have found him. We have found the one. And here he expands on it. It's not just we found him, the Messiah. But he says, we found the guy that Moses was talking about. We found a guy that the prophets were talking about. We didn't just find some vague guy who looks the part We found the very one that Moses and the prophets and all of our tradition of faith told us would come. We found him. He's here. His name is Jesus from Nazareth, the son of Joseph. As we said before, that's not a small thing to tell a first century Jew. This is significant. There's no words on God's green earth that you would want to hear more than those. But also, there was probably a few words on God's green earth that you were more likely to disbelieve. Why? 
because there had been pretenders in times past. The Jews had often wondered, could that be the guy? You know, it's one of the funny things about end times discussion and 21st century evangelicalism is that in the Bible we have a character called the Antichrist. And so how many books have been written where we speculate? Is it him? Is it that guy, that guy, that leader, what have you? Well, back in this day and age, the first century Jews, they weren't speculating about the Antichrist. They were speculating about the Christ. And so they often said, maybe it's that guy or that guy or that guy. And so they tended to have some skepticism about this idea that he had finally arrived. And the proof of that skepticism or that reticence is seen in Nathaniel's response. Philip runs up, and Philip's no dummy. Nathaniel knows Philip. And Philip says, we found him. And the skepticism is so entrenched that the response of Nathaniel is to be dismissive and to seize on one component of what Philip said. Oh, Philip, so you say that the Christ has come. Okay, okay. But you said he came from Nazareth. Now, Philip, you and I know something about Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, you almost had me, Philip, just by telling me he'd arrive, but you lost me when you told me that's where he came from. Because honestly, Philip, you and I both know nothing good has ever come from Nazareth. Nathaniel, he had been waiting. Have reason to believe he was a devout guy. He'd been waiting for the coming Messiah. But possibly his heart had just grown calloused and tired of waiting while they were suffering, while his people were under the boot of Rome. And so the promise of a deliverer, it may have felt like a tease to him. Oh, he's here, is he? But you're saying he's from Nazareth? I don't know anyone who's ever been any good from Nazareth. And you can almost sense his heart just deflating at that news. Now, why would he have been this, this dubious about Nazareth? Why would he have been that skeptical? Well, the answer is it's obvious. Nazareth was considered to be kind of a dump. It's a small town, a pleasant town, really nothing especially good that came from there. It was not held in high regard. The expectation, if you're a Jew, that is if the Messiah came, he'd go to Jerusalem, out of Jerusalem or Hebron or someplace like that, not Nazareth. Nazareth has never been the favorite place of the Jew. To this day, if you go to Israel and you ask the Orthodox Jews their thoughts about Nazareth, they will go, thumbs down. Because Nazareth is the Arab capital of Israel. I use the term capital loosely just to say it is largely, largely populated by those that an Orthodox Jew has no high regard for. So even to this day, Nazareth isn't held in high regard. So why Nazareth? Why, if this place is kind of dumpy, why there would Jesus be raised? Well, here's the thing. God loves to do the things that we least expect. God loves to do things that you would never guess that he would do. He loves to save people you never think he would save. Think of those times throughout Scripture when God has done things that no one ever saw coming. Do you remember Samuel? There's a determination that we're going to have a king. It's going to come from this family of Jesse. So they line up all the sons from the tallest, strongest, most broad-shouldered, oldest, most mature on down. And each one, God says, not that guy, not that guy, not that guy, not that guy. And Samuel comes to the end of the line and says, well, what now? We've run out of sons. Do you have any other sons laying about here or anything? And Jesse says, well, I guess I, I mean, I got the one, uh, David. You want him, David? Samuel says, yeah, let's give it a shot. And sure enough, David shows up before Samuel and God says, that's the guy. The last one that even his own father thought would be the one was the exact one that God determined. God picked Jacob. Instead of Esau. You know who was surprised by that? 
Isaac, their own father, was shocked that this was the outcome, and yet this is exactly what God did. God picked the brutal, brutal man we know as Saul of Tarsus, the great persecutor of the church, who was breathing out threats and murder at Christians. And he says, that's the guy who will become a great apostle, who will write the bulk of the New Testament contents. This guy, the guy, no one would have picked him. No one would have picked him, and yet this is the one that God picked. God picked Mary. God picked an unknown Hebrew teenager to be the mother of Jesus. God picked Mary, God picked Joseph, and God picked Nazareth, an undesirable, undistinguished Jewish town to be the place where young Jesus would be raised. You know, it's dangerous, it's dangerous to discount what God's doing because it doesn't seem to live up to your expectations. It's dangerous to take your presuppositions and your expectations of how God should act, what God should do, what choices he should make, and superimpose them over him, and then expect him to live up to your picture of what he should be. It's dangerous. It's stupid. It's unbiblical. Determining from our own vantage point what God should do is a mistake, because God likes to do things that throw off our expectations. He chooses the weak things to confound the strong. He does not work according to our own presuppositions. Nathaniel here in this text, he doesn't get that, at least not at this time. So when Philip comes in with the greatest news that he could ever hear, he shrugs it off because it doesn't match up with what he expected God should do. Fortunately, though, Philip, fortunately, he didn't take no for an answer. Sometimes when you're trying to bring someone to Jesus, and someone says, ah, and they throw up whatever their objection is, well, Philip here, he doesn't stop. He says, come on, come, come, come. You've got to come and see this. Come and see. So he doesn't take no for an answer, and he leads Nathanael towards Jesus. All right, let's see what happens next in verses 47 and 48. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him. So Jesus is looking out. He sees Philip. He sees Nathanael at some distance. He sees them approaching. And then Jesus, while they're still far off a bit, Jesus says, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile, no deceit. Now Nathaniel says to him, even as he's approaching, he says to him, how do you know me? One guy yells at one, the other guy, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. The guy's coming forward. What? I don't recognize you. Have we ever met? How do you know me that you could say anything, especially about my character? It's one thing from a distance to look at someone's height or weight or hair or lack of hair or what have you and come to some determinations. That's another thing to make a judgment about someone's character while they're still away. So Nathaniel says, how? How do you know me? And then Jesus answers and he says something that's kind of cryptic, at least to our ears, but not to Nathaniel's. Jesus answered and he says this, before Philip called you, I saw you. Before Philip called you, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. You and I, that might not have a ton of meaning. It had a lot of meaning to Nathaniel, to one who heard these words. See, back in verse 46, Philip had led Nathaniel towards Jesus. And Nathaniel, the whole way, was probably muttering and kibitzing about, oh, what a waste of time this is. Philip, you got rocks for brains or something. This is a waste of time. You want to bet that this isn't the real guy? I'll show you, Philip, when we get up there. You know I've done my homework. I'll show you this isn't the real guy. So he's kibitzing and stuff like that and the like. But then again, before he even gets up to Jesus, Jesus calls out to him and identifies him in this way. An Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel again asks, well, how in the world could you say such a thing? Well, here's the thing. Ordinary people can't do that. 
Ordinary people can't look at a stranger from a distance and accurately say something about their character. They could, again, say something about their clothes, but not necessarily their character. And they certainly couldn't say that I saw you doing something I was in no position to see. Jesus explains things to Nathanael that no man of flesh and blood could rightfully say, but only one who is divine. Only one who is divine. That's really the only option here. See, Jesus identifies in these two verses a couple of things he knows about Nathanael, and they don't necessarily refer to his clothing. They all refer to his heart, and that's because Jesus knew his heart. It's one of the perks of being God. You know these things. He understood who Nathanael was, whether he's afar off or close up. Jesus knows our virtues. He knows our vices, and this held true in Nathanael as well. Now, in knowing Nathanael, he probably knew something about his character. He was a man of character, which is why he says, this is an Israelite in whom there's no guile, no deceit. This is an upright guy. This is a stand-up guy. I bet the whole community felt that way about Nathanael. Everyone knew that. But then Christ's words were this. He says, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So what did that mean? There's no other previous mention of this fig tree, so what's he talking about? Let's look at verses 49 to 50. So Nathanael answered... And said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Behold, you will see greater things than these. Now, if you look at Nathaniel's words alone, what a change in his disposition. One minute, he's acting as if his friend Philip is rocks for brains for believing that Nazarene could ever be the home of the Messiah. One minute, he's ragging on Nazareth, casting doubt on Philip's judgment. Moments later, he looks at this Jesus and says, you are the Son of God. You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. You are the King of Kings. So what happened again? What changed his mind here? Well, again, it has something to do with this statement that I saw you under the fig tree. Now, there are different theories about what that might mean. Perhaps, like, I don't know, a day or two earlier, maybe Jesus was out and about and so forth, and, oh, I see Nathaniel under a fig tree, and it, maybe Nathaniel was giving money away or teaching a class or doing something. I, I think I saw him. Maybe that's it. Some people believe that Nathaniel had been praying under the fig tree or doing something under the fig tree, and Jesus just happened to observe it, and that's why he says, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. Well, here's the thing. If Jesus had seen Nathaniel teaching a class or giving money away under the fig tree, everyone else would have seen it too. And Nathaniel would think, that's no big thing. If that's his interpretation, oh, you saw me when I was helping you know, the soup kitchen here in Nazareth, that would not have stood out to him as something that would have pointed to this one's divinity. Because everyone could have seen that. But what if, what if under this fig tree, Nathaniel had been in absolute isolation? And what if the only thing he had been doing had been thinking or praying? What if it's as simple as that? Nathaniel by himself been under a fig tree thinking and praying. What if he had been praying, in fact, about the coming Messiah? What if he had been asking, oh God, why can't it be today? What if he hadn't been asking, like Simeon, show me the consolation of Israel? What if that wasn't going on right in his heart and mind the very moment that Philip approached him? God alone knows the heart. But it's very possible, in fact likely, that there was something about the thoughts or the prayers of Nathanael's heart when he was underneath his fig tree that only the real, actual, divine Messiah could ever hope to know. I think that's probably the case, because when Nathanael approaches, still skeptical, Jesus seizes on something that Nathanael had been doing or thinking or praying that only God could know. And he says, Nathanael, I saw you. This is a way of communicating, I knew your heart. And at this moment, whatever had been going on under that fig tree, 
is drawn to the light because it's at this moment that Nathaniel realizes the one who spoke to me about seeing me, perhaps in my moment of greatest prayerful vulnerability, has called out that very moment. And the only one who could do that is the Son of God. And evidently so shocked by Jesus' words, that's the very declaration that he then makes. You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. What a heartwarming thing that this would be to see, because many of us have those that we love and care about. People we know at, at work or down the street who desperately, we want them to have this moment. Jesus, you are the Son of God. A moment where skepticism is finally pushed away and hope is finally seized. A moment that doesn't come about because we work ourselves up to it, but a moment that comes because Jesus manifests himself in such a way that there leaves no room for doubt. Our heart is rent open. Nathaniel's heart was rent open. You know, Jesus is in the business of converting skeptics. Jesus is in the business of converting those who doubt. That's what he's been doing all along. At one point, you and I were in that camp. Jesus was in the business of doing such. If there's any doubters in your life, don't think they're ever past hope. And don't think that Jesus can't or won't enable them to recognize him in his time. You need to leave that part to him. Your job, bring them to him. You can't cause a change in someone else's heart. That doesn't fall in your job description. You can't prompt or cause someone else to be born again. Not your job, but you can do what Philip did. You can do what Andrew did. You can do what Peter and John did. You can bring someone to Jesus by way of introduction. Introduce them to the Word. Introduce them to church. Introduce them to community group. Introduce them to some means, mode, or or method by which God can impart His presence and His truth to their heart. You can't save someone, but you can lead people to His feet. You can't save someone in of yourself, but you can lead people to him and trust that he is still in the saving business. So this is a heartwarming moment we see in verse 49, but verse 50 is more amazing still because Jesus says, Nathaniel, Nathaniel, if you think that it's cool that I knew what you were thinking, saying, praying while you were under the fig tree, if you're impressed by that, hold the phone. You ain't seen nothing yet. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe you will see greater things than these? All right, let's look at our final verse, verse 51, to see how Jesus builds on that. Verse 51. And then he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you. In other words, take this to the bank, Nathaniel. Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter, you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the sun of man. You know, earlier this morning, Mike Barr read the text from Genesis, Genesis 28. Roughly you know, 2,000 some odd years before the events in today's passage, there was a man, his name was Jacob. Now, Jacob had made some rocky life choices. If you look at the things that Jacob did as a young man, you say, that guy, bleh, that guy is kind of creepy. That guy stole his brother's blessing and the like. Well, Jacob did have some things that he was doing greatly wrong. He had made some bad life choices. And so in Genesis 28, he's a man on the run. A man on the run to the point he ends up just falling asleep on the road with a rock for a pillow. Now, during that particular night, Jacob had a dream. Again, one of the least likely guys you would think, the guy who was sinful and was, stole his brother's birthright and is on the run, sleeping on rocks, that guy, that guy, is the one that God gives this dream to. Now, the dream went something like this. Jacob saw a ladder 
Remember the references to Jacob's ladder? Well, this is it. There was a ladder. This ladder went all the way up to heaven and all the way down to earth. And in this ladder, or upon this ladder, he saw angels going up and, and down it. Now, in the midst of this vision of what he saw, he heard a voice. In Genesis 28, let me read what he heard. He heard these words. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are now lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you. I will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised for you. Now, when Jacob woke up from that, a vivid dream which he saw vivid things and heard unmistakable words, he had quite the reaction. He wakes up, he wakes up, he looks around, and he says this. He says, surely the Lord is in this place. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. Then he was afraid, and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. Now, here's the thing. For roughly 2,000 years, the meaning of that vision, the meaning of this ladder had remained a mystery. When the Jews in the first century talked about Jacob's ladder, they talked about this thing that happened, that Jacob had saw, this vision that he had had, and yet they did not fully understand the fulfillment of what that dream meant for centuries. But then, right here, smack dab in the middle of John 1 near Bethsaida, the mystery is finally revealed. Specifically, the mystery is revealed by Jesus to Nathaniel and Philip when Jesus says, you know that ladder? You know the ladder from Genesis 28 all these centuries ago? You know the ladder from Jacob's dream? Well, I'm it. I am the singular means, the singular means by which man can ascend to heaven because I'm the one who came down from heaven. I am the fulfillment of this. He says specifically, he says, most assuredly, Talking to Nathaniel, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Direct fulfillment of what happened in the very first book of the Bible, back in Genesis 28. Now, for any man, any Hebrew, any Jew, anyone in this era to have made this statement could not be bolder. Could not be a bolder statement than that. For centuries, God's people, the Jews, had looked up to heaven and wondered how to get there. The Pharisees thought you get there just by keeping all these different laws. If you keep enough laws or offset the good deeds, offset the bad ones, if you do that, you can heave yourself onto God's golden shores. Is that the way it works? No, absolutely not. There's a singular means by which we have hope. There's a singular means by which we bridge the gap from here to there, and it's not us heaving ourselves into heaven, trying hard enough that he can't help but allow us in, Rather, his son had to come down from heaven, and we ascend through our faith in him. And that that's the singular means. Everyone wants to get to heaven. They might identify it in different language, different terms, but everyone wants something positive to come on the hereafter. Everyone wants to get to heaven, and so every culture devises a way to get there. But there's just one. There's a singular means. There's not millions of ladders. Not millions of staircases. There's no escalators. Just one ladder, and that is Jesus Christ. This morning in closing, we need a God who's not waiting for us to climb to him, because if that's the case, none of us is going to get there. This morning, we need a God, we need a Savior, who's not waiting for us to do enough good deeds to earn our keep, to earn our place. Can't work, won't work. That's not the gospel. 
We need a God, rather, who, because we will continually fail in our efforts to be righteous, we need a God who makes atonement and propitiation and grants us an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness, a righteousness that comes from His Son that does not emanate from us. That's what we need. If I'm ever to be there, it's because I am seen and perceived by God the Father through the righteousness of His own Son. I need a ladder, but the rungs on that ladder, they're not going to be my good works. And they're not going to be yours. So stop thinking or relying on your own deeds as the means of salvation. We cannot climb a ladder of our own works to heaven. We need one to come down from heaven that we might ascend on him through faith. Plain, straightforward meaning, Genesis 28 and John 1. One way, one path, one door, one ladder. And when Jesus sought out Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, he was looking for people to help share that singular message of a singular Christ, a singular way, a singular door, a singular path, He's looking for disciples to share that message with others. He's still looking for disciples. The job wasn't done here in John 1. It continues today. Jesus still seeks disciples to share that same good news. The work continues. Are we committed to it? Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.